Welcome to In Social Work, the podcast series of the University of Buffalo School of Social Work at www.insocialwork.org. We're glad you could join us today. The purpose of In Social Work is to engage practitioners and researchers in lifelong learning and to promote research to practice and practice to research. We educate, we connect, we care. We're In Social Work. Hello. I'm Charles Sims, your host of In Social Work. Welcome. Our guest today is Dr. Virginia Eubanks. Dr. Eubanks is an Associate Professor of Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at the University at Albany, State University of New York, and a Ford Academic Fellow at New America in Washington, D.C. She is also co-founder of the Popular Technology Workshops, a place where people come together to combat social, economic, and political injustice in the information age. Additionally, she is among the founders of Our Knowledge, Our Power, a grassroots welfare rights and anti-poverty organization. Dr. Eubanks is the author of Digital Dead End, Fighting for Social Justice in the Information Age, and she regularly writes for The America Prospect and Equal Future. Dr. Eubanks received her Ph.D. in Science and Technology Studies from Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, and much of her research and writing centers on issues of social justice in the digital age. This podcast begins with an interview with Dr. Kathleen Cost, Associate Professor at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. It is followed by a brief question and answer period with other members from the school. This is the first of two podcasts from that interview. During this discussion, they explore Dr. Eubanks' work in understanding technology in the lives of low-income communities, as well as how technology is used to manage the poor. Dr. Eubanks also describes attempts to use technology to change the eligibility and case management processes for financial assistance. She details its impact on those receiving assistance as well as on the systems charged with providing it. This interview took place in March of 2015. So I'm Kate Cost. I am faculty here at the School of Social Work. I'm Virginia Eubanks, and thank you for inviting me. I'm an associate professor of women's gender and sexuality studies at SUNY Albany, and right now I'm half-time, and the other half of my life is with a foundation in D.C. called New America, and I'm working on a project that I'm sure I'll get a chance to talk about. So welcome. I thought we'd begin with maybe you telling us some of how you got into this work yeah. and what it's about a little bit, and yeah. then we can go from there. I'm happy to do that. So the work that I'm doing now comes out of a project I did 15 years ago now that resulted in my first book that's called um, Digital Dead End, Fighting for Social Justice in the Information Age. And that project was based on four years of participatory action research that was done with a group of 90 women who live in a residential YWCA in my hometown of Troy, New York. So the Y was run, like they had one floor that was sort of a program floor, so it's a little bit more structured and people coming out of like the criminal justice system or coming out of recovery programs. But the rest of it was basically just an SRO, um, a single room occupancy hotel, so sort of dorm-like rooms, bathrooms and kitchens down the hall. At the time that I was there, they cost $250 a month 
and like 80% of the people who lived there were getting some kind of help to meet that rent. So it was for the folks who were really struggling to meet their basic needs. And I was coming out of the community technology center movement and thinking that what I had to offer that community was a set of skills and access to resources that they wouldn't have otherwise. And so I was very much sort of caught up in this idea that the social justice issue around technology and particularly in cities was about access. So imagine my sort of surprise when I got there and after sort of the first year that we worked on stuff together, very generously, a number of the women sat me down and were like, Virginia, like the questions you ask are dumb. They have nothing to do with our lives. This is not useful. We need to talk to you about being less dumb. And I was sort of taken aback and then just really grateful (laughs) that they had corrected me. And I started asking like, well, if this isn't the framework that works, what works, um, what does describe your life. And they said, you know, the thing is that we're not technology poor. We, like, technology is really ubiquitous in our lives, but mostly where we come into contact with it is in the low-wage workplace, the criminal justice system, and the welfare office. And what really, really, that moment sort of really struck me that people who I was working with, women in the YWCA community, we're having this really profound experience of both technology and the state in the social service office was something that really has stuck with me for a long time. So there's a chapter about that in my first book. And then after taking like an interesting detour, working on a book with a sort of famous black feminist founding member of the Combahee River Collective, one of the authors of the Statement on Black Feminism, a really incredible woman named Barbara Smith who lives in Albany, New York, who I just wrote a book with, and our colleague, Alethea Jones. After that sort of detour, which is like Barbara Smith asks you to do something and you say yes, I have come back to this work. And so I've always wanted to sort of expand that piece of it, how people interact with technology in social services. And it seems like a particularly good time to do that work. So I've done a bunch of research with clients and caseworkers of both child protective services and public assistance in Rensselaer County, which is where I live. But the project more recently has sort of expanded so that I'm looking at child protective I'm looking at public assistance, but I'm also looking at law enforcement. And so my new project, which is currently called Digital Poorhouse, is about how we use government technology in poor and working communities sort of more broadly. So law enforcement, welfare, child protective, potentially public education yeah. as well. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit more then about your project or what you're finding? Or are you so new in it that it's pretty new? Sort of it's pretty new. It's pretty exciting. So right now I'm working on I've developed enough on two cases to talk about them. One of them is the state of Indiana's attempt in 2006 to automate and privatize their eligibility systems for TANF, food stamps or SNAP, and Medicaid. And so they signed a $1.4 billion, with a B, billion dollar contract with a coalition of high-tech companies that was led by IBM. And they basically replaced the state's 2,000 caseworkers with online forms and privately run call centers. And they made a couple of assumptions that were not good, like, for example, requests for help would stay stable. And then we had, of course, the recession, the Midwest floods. 
increased access to food stamps, which like doubled applications. The system basically crashed. Something like between 150,000 and 700,000 people lost access to their benefits. And it actually went so badly that the state broke the contract with IBM. IBM then turned around and sued the state for breach of contract and won. So they ended up spending I think it's $437 million on the original contract, plus $52 million in penalties, three class action lawsuits, an mm-hmm. uh, untold number of fair hearings that just completely uncountable. And then importantly, just hundreds of thousands of people lost access to benefits that they needed. So I'm really interested in The last thing that's important about that case is that exactly the same thing had been tried and honestly failed in exactly the same way in Florida and in Texas, and then it was tried by Indiana. The difference is in Texas, they did it in two counties. It was a pilot that they only rolled out to two counties. And in Indiana, they rolled it out to 59 counties, so most of the state. They didn't make it to Gary or to Indianapolis, which is probably good. So I'm really interested in why we tend to make the same mistakes over and over again when we are trying to make a technical administrative changes to particularly to means-tested programs. Yeah. I think your point about uh, presuming that everything is going to stay stable mm-hmm. and that nothing is going to break mm-hmm. is really such a fallacy mm-hmm. because everything breaks, for one, but technology is just prone to do that as updates go or system gets overloaded. It's really almost comical. Right. Yeah. (laughs) That we do that. And I suspect, too, that we have a tendency to build assumptions about who accesses public services and about what public service programs are for into the technology in ways that create very rigid systems. So, you know, the direct deposit, say, for Social Security works pretty well. And the technology systems that run Social Security aren't perfect, but they're pretty flexible and pretty rigorous and pretty functional. The one of the things that I see in the Indiana case is that the governor at the time, Governor Mitch Daniels, who has gone on to be the president of Purdue, he started this push to automating eligibility by arguing that there was a, that caseworkers and clients were colluding to defraud the system. Mm-hmm. And so there was a famous case in Indianapolis where two caseworkers had sort of worked with this storefront church to set up some dummy accounts. And I think they defrauded the state of eight or $9,000, which is not okay. But basically he sort of seized on that to say like, look, this is the problem. The problem is these caseworkers, these working class caseworkers and these poor people trying to get benefits are coming up with schemes together to defraud the good people of Indiana of their hard earned money. And so the system was set up to break the relationship between caseworkers and clients. That's not a unproblematic relationship, <laughs> right? There's all sorts of problems that, in that, but we did not get a system that was better. So they moved caseworkers' jobs from being based on cases, on families, on individuals, to being based on tasks. And the tasks were just in a queue, and any caseworker could respond to any task, or really had to respond mm-hmm, to any mm-hmm. task. So it was a way, it was assumed that 
caseworkers not developing relationships with their clients was actually good, was going to be more efficient and less prone to fraud. In fact, what it was is people had no context for what was going on in people's lives, no ways to make decent decisions. And so the people who got kicked off of the system, again, 150 to 700,000 people, were pretty much all denied for this catch-all reason called failure to cooperate in establishing eligibility. And basically what that meant was you filled in the online form, um, you had to send your supporting documents, which basically you had to either fax them yourself or go to a help center to fax in the documents. If 20 to 120 pages of supporting documents, as people who work in, in this field actually know how hard it is to establish eligibility for this stuff, and if any one of the documents was upside down, not properly indexed to the file, too dark to read, right? So as so you're photocopying your driver's license and faxing it into a digitized call center, and if it wasn't readable, then people would just get determined uncooperative. Mm -hmm. So they would failure, it would be failure to cooperate. And they would be not only told that they were terminated or they didn't get benefits, but they weren't told to appeal, they were told to reapply. So, if, and if you reapply, of course, it sets the clock back. So 30 or 60 days for another determination. Right. So you've already waited 30 or 60 days for this determination of failure to cooperate for reason of lacking this one paper. Mm -hmm. And then you have to wait another 30 or 60 mm -hmm. days. Mm -hmm. So it's not surprising that the caseloads dropped mm -hmm. as quickly as they did. You know, one of the open questions I think here, and probably one I won't be able to answer, is whether or not that was the intent of the administration, yeah. was just to build a system that was so hard to get through that people would self-deport. Right. <laughs> it's an administrative barrier, right? Yeah. The welfare system has a reputation, a very strong reputation. There's lots of evidence that it uses administrative barriers to yeah. block access. So. It's, yeah, I think your suspicion is, <laughs> is well-founded in that way. Yeah. yeah. And it seems like one of the people I did some interviews with in December, a guy named Chris Hawley, who is a Medicaid attorney in Bloomington, Indiana, he sort of put it in a really nice way, which he, he said, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he said, you know, you have to think, like do a thought experiment, like what would a system that was built to make sure everyone gets the benefits they're eligible to by law what would that system look like? Mm -hmm. And compare it to the system we got. And he <laughs> said, you know, I suspect that this is just a gotcha system. Like it's looking for ways to deny people. And he said, in our legal system, we believe that it's better that 10 guilty people go free than one innocent person languish in jail. It seems like the welfare modernization had the opposite philosophy, mm -hmm. which is better to deny 10 eligible people right. than to um, have even one person who is maybe not eligible get resources. Sure, because if they're really eligible, if they really need it, they're just going to keep faxing. <laughs> right. Keep make us actually spending that money, right. that hard-earned money to do that. Right. That actually brings me to another question. I had a chance to read through an article. It's from last year, January 14, in Prospect or on the future of surveillance. Mm -hmm. And I found the information in that and the couple of examples that were used in that fascinating. And I, I don't know if you remember some of that. Sure. Okay. But I wondered if you could share some of that information with us as well, because I don't know if other folks got a chance to look through that. Yeah, so the article that Kate's talking about was published in January in the American Prospect. And it was one of the, I've been making a transition from more academic writing to, to more journalistic, more popular writing recently. And it was sort of my first big piece. And I think like often happens to writers, I had a lot to say. 
<laughs> that I had been waiting to say. And so it's called Want to Predict the Future of Surveillance, Ask Poor Communities. And it sort of rose out of a frustration with the conversations we're having about surveillance and how they tend to focus on the concerns and the experience of professional middle class people, which is not not important. It's just a myopic and limited way to understand surveillance. So Right, this is right after the Ed Snowden, you know, revelations. I put revelations in quotes because, like I say in the article, like nobody I worked with would be at all surprised that any of this was <laughs> happening. Like it was not revelatory to them at all. They're like, of course the government watches everything you do. They've been doing that to us forever. So, yeah, it grew out of that frustration of there's so many interesting things to talk about that we're not talking about that doesn't fall into consumer protections on the Internet or Google's search algorithm, which is really important to understand but maybe not an earth-shatteringly important social justice concern. <laughs> Sorry, all it's the people okay. who do great work on Google. <laughs> so I said, you know, we really are looking in the wrong place. Like we should be looking in, you know, we should be looking in the welfare system and we should be looking in another place. I do my research is in the homeless community in Skid Row in Los Angeles. And the issues around state surveillance are so very clear there. And I think the stakes are so high mm-hmm. that it's really important if we really want to be smart about surveillance to start in uh, poor and working class communities, not just in the United States, but globally as well. So I talk about how we use state technology in sort of low rights environments. So that's, say, in the public assistance system in the United States, but that's also in in Afghanistan, sure. right, where we test the technology that we then bring home and sure. use on Americans. So the idea is to sort of look for what I think are the most compelling cases in places where people really struggle to find entitlement and exercise of their rights. And also partially because the, the issues are so clear there, but also because the really creative solutions come there as well, right? So I talk in the article about the BRICS cable, for example, which is an alternative internet backbone that's being built by uh, Brazil, Russia, India, and China mm-hmm. in order to sort of end run the United States because the United States has basically packet sniffers on all the internet backbone mm-hmm. in the United States. So every message that goes across our cables has some kind of interaction with the NSA. Mm-hmm. And because we control most of the infrastructure of the internet, you know, other countries are like, hey, we don't want to go through the United States. Let's build a cable that just goes around the United sure. States, right? Or Brazil is creating this internet constitution Mm -hmm. called the Marco that is based in some really important participatory democratic principles that is just beyond sort of what we're thinking about politically in the United States right now, too. So there's some great solutions. Well, and I guess because, I mean, most of us are pretty familiar with Edward Snowden and and just a sense of surveillance in terms of on the streets and all of that. But one of the things that I hadn't even thought about, even though I knew it existed, were like with electronic benefit transfers, Mm. with SNAP, and the fact that caseworkers will actually review, I mean, they must have a lot of time on their hands to review people's shopping decisions Mm. and whether they got chips or something that they shouldn't have gotten with their... Or like Governor LePage in Maine. So another thing we talk about a lot in sort of internet justice or digital justice circles is openness, data openness. Mm -hmm. And I'm a big supporter of transparency and data openness. However, like (laughs) if you look at, at what happens in poor and working communities in the United States, in that case, LePage 
basically took all the data about where people were using their EBT cards, like where they were getting cash, where they were going shopping, and he released it all to the internet as part of a campaign to get this law passed that says you can't use your EBT card in a liquor store or a strip club or, right? Which is based on a misunderstanding of what's on your EBT card, right? So you can't like buy a lap dance with your EBT card. Like that's just not possible. Like that's in the program. It's you can't do that. But if your neighborhood only has a liquor store and a strip club and you need to use the ATM and you do have cash benefits, you now can't use that ATM anymore. So when we look at data openness, I feel like we have to keep in mind that particularly people on public assistance in the United States are already hyper-visible, like all their behavior is so open, and that that's not just, right? So when we talk about data openness, we need to be thoughtful about where that openness is aimed and for what purposes, and I think the LePage example is a really good example of that. Absolutely, absolutely. I guess I want to open it up to folks that are here now to questions, if you have any. One of the questions I had was um, in listening to your summaries of some of what you did with the women in the YWCA, Mm -hmm. you talked about after you had your aha of, oh, I'm asking the wrong questions and they know about technology, about working with them on, uh, I think you called it a popular technology Mm -hmm. project. And that sounded kind of cool, and I wondered if you would talk a little bit about that. Yeah, thank you. I'm actually really glad you asked that. The first half of the book is the book that I think of as like the real world of information technology, is the kind of corrective, like the aha moment that I had, like trying to help other people have that moment. And because of that half of the book, it sometimes seems a little doom and gloom, right? So I think of that as sort of the evil empire half of the book. But the second half of the book is like the Luke Skywalker half of the book, um, because I think it's really important that I'm not understood as saying that basically technology is one more foot on the neck of the poor. Like, I don't think that that's true. And I think that so much power is routed through technological systems right now that it's absolutely critical for us to figure out ways to be critically engaged in how it's designed, how it's implemented, and how it's used. So the second half of the book is about trying to use some of the insights from popular education, which basically the idea of popular education is just people are basically smart. They have a lot of information about the problems they face most directly and surprise, they're most invested in coming up with smart analysis and good solutions to them because it affects their lives really directly and trying to apply that to technology education. So we created some resources, like some physical resources, a tech lab and some other stuff. But we also created a series of what we call popular technology programs that were ways to get people to come together across lines of difference, particularly class difference, and to talk about their sort of everyday interactions with technology in ways that helped us all be more critical about the way we think about technology. And then we built some technology projects out of that. And some of them were quite successful and some of them were middling successful. The one that is actually sort of middling successful as a technology design project, but really interesting, the most interesting to me is we actually, we were going to build a video game that was called Beat the System, Surviving Welfare. And it was based on, do you know this EA game called The Sims? Yeah, so there's this game called The Sims where you just like you have this avatar and you like live their life and you're supposed to like get a house and a car and get a job and meet somebody and like make out in the hot tub. And so we had this huge workshop, like 100 people came to this workshop 
where we played The Sims, and then we did this in-person simulation <laughs> called Life in the State of Poverty that is created by a welfare rights organization, and we compared the two. And a very hilarious conversation ensued where people are like, wait, you're born and you get a car? Like, or no, you're born and you get $10,000? Like, who does that happen to? And I was like, well, a lot of people. <laughs> um, and they're like, wait, you get a job and a car just shows up to pick you up? Where does that happen? And so we had these great conversations about what was missing in these simulation games. And, and the women that I worked with were like, we want to make a new version of this that's based on real life. And so we didn't actually ever get to the video game programming part of that, but we did a bunch of collective research and then used that research to create a number of characters that we then built a bunch of popular education exercises around of being like, so these are common experiences that people have in the system, like how would you respond? And that became something that we then took into the community to use for education. So it wasn't super successful in the sense that we made a video game, but I think it was uh, just an incredibly interesting experience. I think it, the exercises were super useful and I certainly learned a ton from them. So, and all of the tools we used to do that work are in the appendix of the book. So I, the appendix is like a third of the book. It's all like, and these are the exercises we did at this workshop, and these are my notes from this. And so I, we tried to be really, really transparent about what we did so other people can do it as well. An organization came out of that as well called the Popular Technology Workshops that we continue to do trainings, mostly for social movement folks who are thinking about technology as one of the issues that they want to address. Yeah. So not all doom and gloom. Some really great stuff, really fun, interesting stuff. And that's been true with the new work as well, as sort of dire as some of the situations are, like people's sort of courage and smarts and resilience has been just really inspiring to me. So I've been really lucky to work with a, a number of social movements on, on this work. One of the greatest compliments I've gotten in the last year is uh, one of the groups I work with in Los Angeles, which is a coalition called the Stop LAPD Spying Coalition. One of the guys in the Stop LAPD Spying Coalition was like, oh, it's like, you're an embedded journalist. You're just embedded with social movements instead of the military. <laughs> I was like, yes, that is what I do. <laughs> Thank you. I didn't think of it that way. So that's been really great. Others? Well, back to the doom, but trying to get to a, to a happier place. As you were talking, you know, it just made me think about, you know, it's just a much more technologically advanced way of like, you know, the drive-by checks on women mm. when they were received in the early days of AFDC and then, of course, you know, the drug testing and all of that. But I'm thinking here about, I mean, I think I've been unaware of a lot of that in terms of, well, what's happening now? And I think how I think about it is that we are probably so surveilled that what does one do about it? And I'm sitting here trying to think, well, what should our social work students know mm. about how it impacts poor communities, you know, disproportionately, and what's happening here in New York State, and what should they be aware of, and then what are the efforts to in the social justice efforts around that? Mm -hmm. And I think that's incredibly, that's some really challenging yeah. stuff, right? So. My impression right now is that we actually know very little about what's happening, and that's from both sides. So on the social justice side, we have a tendency to think about technology in terms of being a tool, like a tool for mobilization, like Twitter, or apps for mobilization, as a means of sort of civic engagement, or as an access issue. 
And then we think of the content of our organizing, if that's against police brutality or if that's LGBTQ rights. We think of that as our issue and technology as a tool. And one of the things that the Popular Technology Workshops does is say, every single issue you have is also a technology issue, right? Like, and you have to think of technology not just as a tool, but as an issue as well. Mm -hmm. So if you're doing, say, uh, police brutality, it's impossible to think about that well without thinking about the role of body-worn cameras right now, without thinking about the uptake of drones in police departments, without thinking about the tension between statistical models of policing and community models of policing, which actually aren't so different. I've recently learned, but that's a whole other conversation. So that every issue you have is also a technology issue. So I think that that's probably true within that actual frontline work as well. The most important issue I've found for frontline workers who I've also talked to is about the role of their discretion. And discretion is a double-edged sword, right? So on one hand, caseworker discretion historically has meant really unequal access to public service programs, particularly along the lines of race. But I always tell the story of how we lost judicial discretion. So like in the 70s, there was sort of a weird bedfellows situation created by progressive folks who were really concerned about racial inequities in judicial sentencing and law and order folks who were just like, just lock everybody up. That what, and the result of that was mandatory sentencing guidelines. And the idea for the progressive folks was mandatory sentencing guidelines would make it so that judges could not be as racist in the way that they were applying the law. But what we got was like an exploding incarceration of black youth or of black and brown youth. So I think it's really important to keep that in mind as the model that like though caseworker discretion can be really problematic, that replacing that with technological systems that are no less biased, but have made that decision-making invisible is not useful. And so I think a lot about this role of discretion, and that's partially why I'm trying to do work in the welfare system and also in law enforcement. It's because discretion plays so much of a different role for say, a frontline welfare examiner and a, a beat officer. In some ways it's similar and in some ways it's quite different. So that's one of the reasons I've looked at both of those things. So I think discretion, the role of discretion is a really important thing for us to think about. Yeah, and there's some other stuff, but I'll keep it at that for now. But you just said something that sort of reminded me about one of my concerns about what do we teach students about technology. And I think that technology is here to stay. It's not bad, it's not good, it's an issue, and it can be used for bad or for good. The decision-making systems people are putting into place are invisible, and it seems like one of the things that we would want to do, particularly for social workers who are moving into more organizational and macro practice, but for the even the direct service people, we should be demanding that we know what the decision-making pathways are, you know, the processes and algorithms. In other words, that needs to be made transparent. And, you know, it doesn't always work correctly, but if we just treat it like this black box, like, okay, and it gets this decision, without a chance for us to really scrutinize those rules, we're going to end up with some very bad systems, which right. you gave some good examples of already. Yeah. Um, and it seems that those are the kinds of questions we need to be asking people. They need to understand issues of decision flow and how decision making proceeds and scrutinize it, not treat it like it's God, right. but treat it just to anything else. Does this make sense in light of what we know is going on in a 
particular situation, and that recipients should be part of that as well. Yeah. So unblackboxing it yes. is, is, I think, a really important part of it. And maybe that means teaching social work students some computer programming so that maybe not. Right now, the way it's set up, so I did some archival research on this because my understanding early in this process was that most of these changes happened as part of the 1996 reforms, which required that all offices computerize. And I was interested in looking at that moment in time and seeing how that stuff happened. So I went to the New York State Archives and I started digging through the archives. And I was like, 1996, and I was like, oh no, they already had it. And I went back and I kept going back and I kept going back. And what surprised me is actually when these systems were built was in the late 60s and early 70s. So the Medicaid management information system and the welfare management system were both built really early. And they were built in the context of Rockefeller's reform of the welfare system, which looked very much like the 1996 reforms, like it was work first, it was like new residents in the state of New York shouldn't get access, it was family caps, it was right very fraud-centered, very familiar language, surprisingly familiar language. So at the same time, the National Welfare Rights Movement had made it impossible, at least legally, to outwardly discriminate against people and create that filter to the system. So there had been all of these civil rights successes around access to public resources, but there's also this backlash going on at the same time. There's a recession, right? There's been all this movement that people are now a little freaked out about and they're backpedaling. And so there's this political moment where you can't legally and explicitly bar people from public services, but the program's growing really quickly because we've opened up all this access. And how are you going to put a new bottleneck on that. And again, I don't think you can say that that was an outward intention, like that five guys sat in a room twirling their mustaches, like saying like, this is how we're going to do this. But again, you have to think about what the system would look like, that what the point was to make sure everybody got the, their entitlements. And so we see these administrative systems being built at the same time that they're trying to lock down access to public services that the state is trying to move power, decision-making power up the line, away from local offices and to the state. And it matters that this was the context in which these systems were built. So one of the things I argue is that we sort of smuggle politics into these systems, into these administrative systems, in a way that like the governor of Indiana could not stand up on his campaign trail no matter how right-leaning he was and say, I'm gonna kick half a million people off welfare. He couldn't say that, but he could say, we're going to make the system much more efficient and we're going to hew more closely to the letter of the law. And then the effect is that potentially half a million people get kicked off. So the last thing I was going to say about that is often the decision-making tree, the power tree will be, you know, the governor at the top, the IT folks over to the left, and then the social service folks over to the right with their own power and structure. But there's not a lot of communication across between the folks who actually do the work in social services and the folks who actually do the work in technology services for the state. They sometimes do sort of participatory conversations around how to design systems that will work best for workers. But in terms of making those decisions about like, what is welfare for? Right, that conversation never happens. And I think those are the kinds of conversations we need to get ourselves and our students involved in. I think I spent an early part of my career here in New York State working in child welfare. When I came on, WMS was already in play, and then they developed connections as a way of surveilling oh, I know connections. services yeah. of people who had any kind of services delivered by the Department of Social Services. 
and it's multiple iterations. So there's a piece of me that goes, listening to your model, they don't talk to the, to the folks who are delivering. So what I think about, I think about the powers to be governor or legislature, and then somewhere under that comes IT, and then under that comes social <laughs> services. Because I think that the powers to be say what they want, the IT people build it, and social services people get to figure out how to implement that in some way that is often not helpful. And then the end user, almost always in almost all these systems, the end user is the person who gets stuck with it, mm -hmm. and it often doesn't work real well for them, but but it does serve the overarching goal of the powers to be. I can remember the day they walked in and said, we're going to have connections and what it's going to look like. Yeah, connections is a really interesting case, right? So connections is another one of those where they rolled that out in Texas. It did not work in Texas. And then yes. we bought it from Texas. Yes. And we're on build 19 of connections, which is like the reprogramming it 19 times since we in instantiated it. From what I understand, it's getting better from the user's point of view. But this is also one of the sort of big questions of this work, which is, so the state of Indiana now has instituted this hybrid system because after they broke the contract, they were like, this did not work, and they just sort of dumped it all. But they kept pieces of it, including the move to task-based work instead of case-based work, which is important. There was a huge uproar about this in the state. There was a lot of pushback. There was these community meetings, 500 people coming out, yelling and screaming. Like there was amazing, amazing movement organization around this when they had the modernized system. When the hybrid system came out, that kind of died down. And one of the things I've been asking is like, is it better? Like, is it actually that it's working better? And there's some really conflicting opinion about it, right? So some people say, yeah, you know, we don't, so people don't get failure to cooperate it all the time. Like the documents just don't disappear into what they call the black hole in Marion, which is the document center. But things don't disappear into the black hole in Marion as much. It seems to be working okay. But then there's a bunch of other people who say, no, it's no better at all. Like it's just that they've gotten rid of all the people who originally worked there. And the new people who work there have no idea that it's ever been any different. And the rest of us got tired and like we moved on to other things or we got sick and retired, which actually happened to a number of people or they died, right? A number of recipients passed away during this process. And so it's really like connections, like the caseworkers will say, oh, it's much better now. But I wonder, you know, it's like, what's your comparison, right? Were you a worker before this, we had this system at all? Because it seems to me when I ask them like, what do you need to do your job well? And what does the computer system do? Like they're just two completely different sets of things, right? Like they'll say, you know, what I need to do my job well is like a holistic picture of the community, of community resources and community struggles, like real time to talk to people one-on-one, -on -one, access to networks. They don't even get access to the internet and connections, so they can't even check if a food pantry is still open, right? So it seems like I share your suspicions <laughs> of connections, yeah, and of what it does to the work of social work and certainly what it does to recipients. And coming back to Diane's question as well, it doesn't have to be that way, right? These systems can absolutely be built to help people recognize where they have access to resources they need. Simple thing we could do right away in every single public service office in New York State 
is there's one screen, only the caseworker looks at it. The, when I was working on the book, when I was talking to people about their interactions with technology and the welfare system, they're like, oh, we see the butts of computers all day long. Like they walk in the welfare system, and there's like a caseworker, and this is the back of a computer, and they're like, you're not in the system, and they go back behind, <laughs> so they don't have to make eye contact. And I was like, oh, yeah, that must be frustrating. They have no idea what's on the screen. Right? All you have to do is put another screen in front of it and have them look with you as you were filling in the paperwork and correct stuff and be like, oh, wait, I didn't know about HEAP. Like, am I eligible for that? Like, oh, let's check that and see if I'm eligible. Right? Has there ever been an example of us doing that for a means-tested program in this country? Has there ever been an example of designing a system that really works for people right. when it comes to means-tested programs. Right, and when I'm know? pushed, when I'm pushed, when people are like, what's the solution? I'm like, unconditional cash transfers. <laughs> Stop checking, <laughs> just give people money. But, uh, you know, but Nixon wanted to do that, so I'm also suspicious of that. I'm not sure that I know of an example of uh, state or local government example of that there's lots of examples of it in the social movement space and so in New York City there's this great thing called the self-sufficiency calculator which movement organizations sit down with people and go through their finances with them and make sure that they know what they're eligible for and also at the end there's this brilliant little twist that they added to it at the end the program tells you what your hourly wage would need to be to actually be self-sufficient in terms of like decent housing, decent education, healthcare. And so this is something we used at the Y and it was fascinating because people would be like, wait, I have to make $45 an hour to be self-sufficient? And then they'd be like, oh, my financial problems are not my financial problems. They're like, they're the society's financial problems. And we'd be like, yeah, like it's not about balancing your checkbook. It's about the fact that the minimum wage is $7 and you have two kids, right? So there's this real sort of movement building moment built into that. I think there's a lot of space to do that with EITC. I actually yeah. think there's a lot of space to do that with ACA, with uh, like building our own healthcare exchanges that are social justice focused rather than insurance industry focused, right? I think there's a lot of room to do that. I think that's a place we could get sort of civic technology people engaged, yeah. though civic technology people tend to be like kind of standoffish about the state, which is a whole nother thing that I'll talk about, I can talk about, but we won't do it today. But, you know, I think we need to engage much more deeply with these state programs in how we think about doing digital justice work. There's a lot of space to do that. You have been listening to the first of a two-part discussion on technology and social justice with Dr. Virginia Eubanks. We hope that you will join us for part two here at In Social Work. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We look forward to your continued support of the series. For more information about who we are as a school, our history, our online and on-the-ground degree in continuing education programs, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. And while you're there, Check out our Technology and Social Work Resource Center. You'll find it under the Community Resources menu.